0: We've been waiting for it. You've been waiting for it. The Summer Olympics are finally
1: here. Today on How to Do Everything, we're going to talk all about the Olympics. And this is going to be great whether you're a huge fan or even if you don't care the least bit about sports.
0: Let's start with the torch relay. Sir Patrick Stewart, you probably know him as Captain Jean-Luc Picard, is on the line with us now.
1: He carried the torch on Monday... So, Sir Patrick, tell us, what was that experience like?
2: It was uh, um, a thrilling and really very emotional experience. I was not prepared for that. The, The sidewalks were deep, right up to the walls of the shops and buildings and stores, people hanging out of windows, on the scaffolding of building sites, on rooftops even. The enthusiasm and excitement and the hunger for people to... See the torch and to touch it and and to get close to it was quite extraordinary
0: we We watched some video of you carrying the torch um, and you you looked pretty fit. I wondered, did you work out? Did you prepare for this, knowing you were going to be running with the torch
2: yeah, I work out anyway um, you know I had seventeen years in California, and <laughs> uh, you know you work out or die in california yeah. and i I I gave up running, but I really got into power walking, which is what I do um, at least three times a week, maybe four times a week. But running is another issue. I don't run anymore. So I did go into trading. I was running half a mile, given that I I knew I only had 400 meters to go, and I thought if I run half a mile, I can can comfortably run with with a torch in my hand um, 400 meters. I, but I got off the bus. I was the last one to be dropped. I got off a bus at the bottom of a hill, and my 400 meters were entirely uphill. Very unfair, given that I was arguably one of the oldest people to carry the torch right. this year, I think.
1: Yeah, And, and a knight, no less.
2: Y- you would have thought, wouldn't you, that the knighthood and my great age, uh, combined with the fact that I am Jean-Luc Picard and Professor Xavier, <laughs> they would have arranged it more comfortably for me.
1: So, can you describe the torch for us? How heavy it is, what it looks like?
2: Well, you know, if you will just bear with me for one second of silence. I know silence is anathema on the radio, but you keep talking for... I I do mean two seconds.
1: Okay. Uh Uh-oh.
2: Because I now have in my hand the Olympic torch, which I carried on that day, and I'm just taking it out of its beautiful canvas bag that it was given to me in and i am holding in my hand this beautiful um i think it's brass honeycombed elegantly shaped torch it's unmistakably a torch wait Um, don't
1: they need that for the olympics
2: okay i'm going to let you in on a huge secret there are lots of them not just one um Every runner gets his own torch, oh. every runner. And I think there have been over 8,000 relay torch carriers. So um, a lot of these were made, and um, they, they give you a, 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 an opportunity, if you wish, to purchase your own personal torch when your run is over. Yeah. And it's a beautiful instru- object, and I'm going to think of some way of mounting it. And it has a <clears throat> beautiful Brass badge that says London on it and the Olympic rings, 2012, and it's a little scorch marked at the top where the flames came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know, I may charge visitors. I may let them run around my garden <laughs> carrying this, and there'll be a small payment, which of course I will donate, probably to NPR. Hey, oh, man. excellent!
1: Thank you.
0: For um, that.
2: But they have. It has been decommissioned, so you can no longer light it. It won't flame anymore.
0: Oh. Huh. You know, when I was watching the footage of you running with it, and you can see the flame, and I thought, you know, if I were in his shoes, if I were carrying the, this torch, I would be worried the entire time about a gust of wind or something that would make it go out. Were you were you worried about it?
2: Um, I didn't think about wind, but, guys, I'm an actor, you mm. know? I was carrying the Olympic torch. I wasn't going to, like... Carried by my side, you know, where the flame might have singed my beard, I had it elevated up in the air, you know, like I was the original runner at Marathon bringing the news of the victory.
1: Well, now, we are, we're a how-to show, so now, if you could, could you kind of give us, like, maybe a couple tips on how to carry the Olympic torch?
2: Um, yes. First of all, with gratitude, I would say, that you're doing it at all. And then I think it needs um, a good arm elevation with a slight bend in the arm, but for safety reasons, you need to have it well above your head. Mm-hmm. However, I would recommend you guys are young, aren't you? You're really youthful. Oh yeah. You, you could probably keep the torch in the same hand. I had to switch hands two or three times mm-hmm. because I'm holding it in my hand now, and I would say it weighs. Um, I would say it weighs six pounds.
1: Oh, all right. Okay.
2: You're not impressed, are you? I can hear you're not impressed. Well,
1: you're going to feel that after some distance, I would think.
2: Exactly. And I would say maybe the one other piece of advice I would give, and I think this is very important, try really hard not to fall over.
0: Mm. That that seems good, yeah.
2: I, I think so. I think perhaps that's maybe the best thing that I can pass on. To any of your listeners who find themselves Olympic torchbearers in the future, future, try and stay upright if possible.
1: Uh, is was there anything they, the Olympic organizers, told you that you couldn't do while carrying the torch?
2: Uh, well, indeed, um, we all of us signed four pages of restrictions.
1: I one thing I think when you're carrying a torch. If you were to see maybe an elegant woman pull a cigarette out of her purse. Are you allowed to walk over to her and say, let me get that for you?
2: Only in your dreams. Yeah. No, all of that is really frowned on. Uh, I, it is It is there as a symbol of the uh, Olympic flame carried from Athens. And the flame stays alight all the time. Yeah. Um, even I was the last one to run before lunch, so instead of transferring the fire from one torch to another torch, it was transferred to an oil lamp, ah. um, like a miner's, like an old-fashioned miner's oil lamp. And that was kept burning all the way through lunch. And then the next torch was lit off the oil lamp and so on. And, and, um, and I, I find that a rather beautiful and touching symbol, the idea of the eternal flame. Yeah.
1: Well, Sir Patrick, thank you so much for talking to us about this. Can I ask you one dorky question? Oh, dear. Yeah, here it comes. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's say you had a sewing machine, and it was broken, and you took it to the repair shop. What would you tell the repairman? What instruction would you give him?
2: Um, I would say, this is a sewing machine. It doesn't sew. Mm Mm-hmm. Make it sew. Yes.
1: Well, again, Sir Patrick, thank you so much for your time, and uh, thank you for uh, carrying the torch for the Olympic Games.
2: Uh, It was a a great thrill. I shall never forget it, and I've enjoyed talking to you.
0: Friday night is the opening ceremony. It's always fun to watch. Big spectacle. A
1: lot of excitement. Uh, There's two things in particular you should look for. One— Look for athletes gathering up side-by-side side in little semicircles as they make their way around the track.
0: Uh, why do you want to do this? Our producer, Blythe, spoke with U.S. 10,000-meter runner Matt Tegenkamp.
3: You are stuck on the infield for, like, I don't know, four hours between the procession and uh, actually on the field. And you have nowhere to go. You obviously are staying hydrated and have lots of fluids and realize that it's hot out and you're on your feet forever. And uh, oftentimes you're finding yourself having to go to the bathroom uh, about an hour into the event. And uh, there's really, I mean, there is absolutely nowhere to go. Either people make uh, kind of shields around the person that kind of has to go to the bathroom on the field.
4: Okay, or... wait, so so you're saying people like, kind of create a half moon or how how does that work like a full circle
3: like a half moon usually if that starts you'll see a bunch of people running towards you to uh to kind of take part in uh relieving themselves (laughs) right
4: right so so what was the uh specific way you got around that yeah and
3: so dathan um dathan ritzenheim who's actually uh also on the ten thousand meter team here in london with his experience in 2004 and in zero eight, he came prepared with, uh, these like bags of, uh, like gel inside of them. And basically it was, uh, it just absorbed any fluid. And so it was just like, he started handing them out to kind of a first come first serve. And yeah, it was treating it kind of like you would be going a wat like in a water bottle. And, um, the bags were disposable, and it just the gel just absorbed all the all the fluid. So it uh, made life pretty easy at that point.
0: So you'll watch the opening ceremonies. You'll see these little walls of athletes, and you'll know all that's happening is they're concealing people peeing into little pee bags. Yep,
1: we've just blown their secret. Uh, now the other thing to look for, uh, and we talked about this on an earlier episode, is Russell Mark. He's an Australian shooter. He lost a bet, and he'll be wearing a mankini. To the opening ceremonies.
5: I guess it's just a little piece of fabric that covers your um, private parts at front, and it's got two straps that go up and virtually go over the top of each um, each nipple. Uh, it's very <laughs> high cut at the back, very very high cut at the back, high enough that I could sell advertising on each butt cheek.
1: So this is basically this is the swimsuit that the Borat character in the Borat movie wears.
5: Exactly. And right. it's the same color. Everyone who sent me one has been sending me lime green. So just in case the Queen who the Queen of England, who will be at the opening ceremony, has bad vision, they've sent me the fluorescent lime green one, so she'll be able to swap me really easily.
0: <laughs> <laughs> she'll be able to pick out one guy, and it's the Australian in <laughs> <and> the mankini. <laughs>
5: Well, uh, as part of uh, a tradition, Australia being a commonwealth country, when you actually parade past the queen, you're supposed to dip your hat to her. Well, (laughs) she might get more than she's (laughs) bargained for on July the 27th. All
0: right, let's move on to what you should look for in gymnastics.
1: One thing is little bottles of honey. Here's Jeffrey Fowler,
0: a reporter for The Wall Street Journal.
6: So I was attending the U.S. Gymnastics Olympic Trials at the end of last month, the beginning of this month, in San Jose. And I got what was possibly the best and worst seat in the house, which is right in front of the parallel bars. Yeah. I say it might have been the worst because um, I was under a constant sort of snow of chalk from <laughs> uh, the guys as they would go up there and prepare their bars or do their routines. It was, there was chalk flying everywhere and it was all over my screen and I couldn't see anything. But it was also kind of the best seat in the house because I really got a front row uh, view of what these guys did to prepare um, to compete, to fly through the air like they do on those parallel bars. Yeah. And right in front of me was a little um, container that said had a label on it that said honey. And, um, and I started wondering, what is honey? And I noticed a couple of honey bears in there and some honey pots and one other strange-looking tin. And I just started asking questions. And... Um, the guys explained to me what it was all about.
0: So uh, t- tell us how, they, how, how they're using the honey.
6: So uh, one of the most difficult routines that any male gymnast has to do is the parallel bars. So this is the routine, if you're not super familiar with gymnastics, where they have these two bars that are on the same level, and they're flipping and flying through the air and swinging around on one arm, uh, and then they have to land uh, without jumping. And so it requires a particular kind of upper body strength and also the ability to hold on to the bar, sometimes with just one hand while you're swinging around through the air. Uh, The the gymnasts say that when they want to do that, um, they need everything, every bit of help they can get to keep their hands on those bars. Um, And so they've experimented over many, many years about what are the best kinds of tricks and tools they can use to keep their hands sticking on those bars. They had tried... uh, uh, sugar water, they tried um, molasses, uh, pancake syrup. Uh, <laughs> but many in the U.S. said they really um, had settled on the best material was honey.
0: So so they're just taking this honey and, and rubbing it on their hands?
6: Uh, not just on their hands. They're also rubbing it on the bars. The first step is to um, get a dab, kind of about the size of a quarter. You put that on your hands, and then you go up to the bar, and you start slathering up the bar with that honey and you add a layer of chalk on top. By the time you sort of put this concoction there, um, it doesn't feel sticky like you might think the top of pancakes might feel. It just has a nice kind of grip to it.
0: And so I imagine by the time the last gymnast gets up there, there are just layers and layers of honey and chalk and whatever else they're using. It's
6: disgusting. (laughs) Um, It's actually extremely disgusting. And... uh, one, one part I left out is, so it is the responsibility of uh, the gymnast who comes next to clean off the bars.
0: So is this, this is completely legal? It's not like, you know, they, they can um, use whatever they want?
6: Um, as, as we said in our journal story, it is deliciously legal. Um, uh, in fact, some of the guys admitted that they even sometimes will taste a little of the honey if they need a little sugar boost uh, oh. or whatever else they're using.
1: Well, is, there, is there anything they can't, they absolutely cannot bring out?
6: Um not that I have heard anybody um, identify to me. I mean, I went sort of to the uh, International Gymnastics Federation based in Switzerland, which sets all the rules for gymnastics competitions at the Olympics and elsewhere. And they said they really um, don't have any rules. And the athletes I spoke to, um, although most of the Americans are honey men, uh, most of the athletes I spoke to said uh, that they had seen all kinds of stuff over the years. Uh, one uh, had, had seen some beer being used a like kind of a beer sugar water mixture oh. um, um and then another uh, american athlete that i spoke to told me about how in the mid 90s he um he melted down gummy bears and uh and even made a kind of a goop out of them and, and used that to apply to the bar.
0: <laughs> so you're you're a wall street journal reporter did you talk to any of these guys about uh the missed sponsorship opportunities that they could be getting molasses and, and honey endorsement deals
6: well i'll tell you uh, I was really surprised to find out that the uh, honeymakers had no idea that this was going on. I did speak with the National Honey Board, uh, which uh, oversees honey production in the United States, um, and they were pleasantly surprised um, and uh, said that, you know, we knew honey had many uses, but this was not one of the ones we knew about. Um, so um, keep, keep your eyes peeled for uh, 2016.
1: One more thing from Jeffrey that we didn't know about gymnastics, the outfits.
0: Yeah, they are not uh, just for fashion.
6: We look at the leotards of the women, they're often sort of sparkly and shiny because they think it helps the, the uh, judges see them better. And oftentimes uh, the men in gymnastics will often wear white pants, not always, but they often like white pants or they prefer white pants because uh, you can't see the chalk on them, which would give away if they've accidentally hit into the bar. There,
0: there are a lot of people who don't take the sport of race walking seriously maybe it's the funny way they walk uh but you, there, there's actually a lot more going on in, in the sport than than we realize here's quentin rue he's competing in the race walk for new zealand um and, and he tells us that the walk looks funny because it has to
7: race walking is essentially just a a normal walking sped up and but to speed up you need to to use your move your body in, in a slightly different way and that gives that distinctive lateral movement of the pelvis um, and the rotation of the spine and the, and the locking of the knees and things. Um, and if you ask someone to walk as quickly as, you, as they can, um, just just a, a regular person who's never tried race walking before, if, if you ask them to walk as quickly as they can, then quite often they'll do something quite similar to that um, just without thinking about it. Um, and that's just, that's just a product of, of trying to go as fast as you can.
1: Well, now, wait a minute. Now, when people do that and they walk really fast, there are specific rules, right, for race walking that they would probably be in violation of.
7: True. Yeah, that's right. Um, And particularly, um, the one um, that distinguishes race walking from uh, regular walking uh, is is that you have to land with a straight knee. So your, your knee, so when your heel hits the ground, your front heel hits the ground, the knee has to be straight or locked. And it has to stay straight until you uh, the the leg passes underneath your body, um, and so that's the one which uh, when most, most people are, are street walking, there is a bit of bend in the knee, um, which isn't isn't the case in race walking. And like you say, you'd be in violation of a of, of one of the rules of race walking, and, and you would be likely to be disqualified.
1: So, Quentin, when you, are, do you ever have this where you're uh, out and about and maybe you're late? To an appointment or to a meeting, and you don't want to run because there are other people around. Do you find yourself breaking out into a kind of a race walking? Thing?
7: I think um, if I was not going to, if I if I was self, feeling self conscious and not wanting to run because there were other people around, I think I'd feel even more self conscious race walking. <laughs> uh, I don't think that I don't think that would be a good way to be inconspicuous.
1: So, Quentin, if I'm going to be watching uh, some race walking now, can you uh, give me some things I should look for as I'm watching the race?
7: People in, in race walking, and I, and I don't know exactly why this is, but, but you get a lot more people collapsing in race walks than you do in, say, marathons. Hmm. Um, you know, you still get people pulling out or slowing down or, or throwing up in marathons. But, um, but you don't get as many people just collapsing from, from sheer exhaustion. And, um, and so, so in terms of a, a, a spectator thing, it can be kind of heart-wrenching and, and fascinating at the same time watching these people trying to push through that barrier. Or, um, and sometimes you can, you can see that there's no way they can.
0: Well, Quentin, uh, this has been fun. And uh, thanks so much and, and best of luck in London.
7: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you.
1: Okay, moving on to dressage, that's fancy horse dancing. Yeah, they they call it ballet for horses. We talked about that a few episodes ago, and then we got this question.
8: Hey guys, this is Dan from East Lansing, Michigan. Uh, I was recently listening to episode
0: 63 of your show in which you interviewed Olympian Heather Blitz about the Olympic sport of dressage, and I was left with sort of an interesting question, and that is
8: this. Uh, How does one manage to get a horse overseas for the Olympics? Do they travel by boat or plane? Thanks, guys.
0: So here's the answer uh, from Heather Blitz. Uh, She and her horse, Paragon, are in London for the Olympics.
4: Actually, it's really simple. They go on a cargo plane, and there's plenty of room uh, in the cargo section. And some of the planes that take horses also have just uh, a normal passenger section in the front of the plane. And many of you that have flown across or overseas may have had horses in the back section of the airplane you didn't even know it so really yeah it's actually a less stressful travel uh method than being on in a van on the road because there's n- there's no noise there's not a lot of vibration and unless you get turbulence it's really quiet and they can actually sleep on a plane where they really can't sleep on the road wow
0: it's it's a long flight do the flight attendants bring them snacks and drinks or? <laughs>
4: the grooms do oh really <laughs> <Wow>. yeah <laughs> Yeah, I get to fly with my horse. Sometimes you get to fly with him, and sometimes you don't. It just depends on the arrangements. It's really nice when you do, and I spend a lot of time making sure that that he doesn't need any more water or any more hay, or I feed him lots of carrots and apples to keep him happy and relaxed, and makes this trip better. And the less they stress, um, of course, the better they compete when they get there. So you want to do everything you can to make it a very nice first-class trip for them.
1: Do they have to share armrests?
4: (laughs) But they
1: don't have arms. Can you imagine being like the middle horse? I'm always the middle horse. Right.
4: (laughs) They have to share a hay net.
1: Oh, is that what it is? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah.
1: Shooting is something you probably haven't seen much of on the Olympics. It's not...
0: It hasn't generally in the past been the thing that I tune into, but this year... I'm going to, because uh, Malaysian woman Nur Suryani Mohamed Taibi is competing. She is eight months pregnant.
1: Now, for a sport that requires absolute stillness and precision, a kicking baby is not an uh, advantage. That could be the difference
0: between a gold medal and killing someone.
1: Exactly. So we wanted to talk to somebody who'd been there before.
0: Christy Moore competed for the Canadian curling team in Vancouver when she was five months pregnant.
1: So, Christy, did that affect your performance at all?
9: Um, well, no. At that time, no, it hadn't. Um, probably if I was eight months pregnant doing um, curling, it probably would have been pretty challenging um, <laughs> just because of the, the baby belly getting in the way sort of a thing. Um, but I know women that have done it um, in our sport that have been eight months pregnant at a world championship, you know, curling and that sort of thing. So it's doable, yeah.
0: And, you know, I, I think about uh, when I watch curling, I imagine that it would, when you get down in that kind of kneeling position, that it yeah. would it would really challenge your balance, right?
9: Yeah, um, I didn't find any issues with balance, but you definitely did, ch- it did change the way that you, you know, your stance and the way you lined up and that sort of thing. You had to adjust your legs because there was extra Room needed for the belly to fit in there, but um, wow, I can't. I
1: just can't imagine that. And I think about this Malaysian uh, shooter who's going to mm-hmm. be competing in an event where even your heartbeat can affect your performance.
9: Yeah, definitely, heart rate changes. Um, any sort of activity that you do once you're pregnant, your heart rate goes up, of course, because it's working extra hard. So I think it's no different than having, you know, an injury or. Something like that that you have to work around or work with.
1: Well, I, I can imagine being in that situation where she's down trying to line up her shot, and then the baby kicks.
9: Yeah. <laughs> or she has to burp
1: or
0: something.
9: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it could be pretty interesting.
1: Did
0: you ever, did you ever feel a kick or anything like that when you were uh, when you were curling?
9: Um. Yeah. Yes. For sure. I, yeah. I did. I curled right up until I was seven and a half months. So. Um, yeah, I definitely felt that. For sure.
1: And did did you ever find yourself in the middle of a, a curl talking to the baby like not now, baby, not now? <laughs>
9: uh, no, not so much. Um, I don't know. I think too, you get kind of used to them being there. So after a while, you just kind of ignore it. I think. <laughs>
0: well, do you have? Uh, would you like to give any advice for um, this uh, this shooter competing in in London?
9: Oh, I don't know if she needs any advice. It sounds like she's doing everything right. She got there, so uh, I think she's doing just fine. I, I wish her luck. Um, I think it's awesome when women do things that people think is sort of out of the box. You know, if you can work your life around it and still continue to do what you love to do and have a family, I think that's amazing, and I think I wish her all the best.
0: Well, Christy, thank you so much for for talking to us.
9: Hey <laughs> no problem.
0: So, on to basketball. The question for everybody is, how do you beat the Dream Team?
1: Coco Archibong is a forward for the Nigerian team competing in London. They face the U.S. on August 2nd.
0: So, Coco, when you found out you guys were going to be playing the Dream Team, what was your first thought?
8: I can't wait. Can't wait. before Before it even got to that point when we were playing the qualifying, I was like, I hope we get into America's group. I hope we play in USA's group. And a lot of my teammates are saying the same thing just because, I mean, who else would you rather play, you know, than the best?
1: Do you know, Coco, who you're going to be matched up against?
8: I have no idea. But I whoever it is, you know, I know it's going to be the matchup of a lifetime for me, so I'm looking forward to it.
1: Yeah, so is there anyone in particular on the on the U.S. team that you feel like, I could take that guy?
8: <laughs> I mean, as an athlete or as a basketball player in general, I feel like, you know, you're maybe playing the wrong sport if you don't feel like you can take everybody. So for me it's just like whoever it is, they you know, they're gonna have to deal with me just as much as so I'm gonna have to deal with them. I just look forward to it, you know.
1: Are there is there a scuffle happening behind you?
8: Uh not not directly behind me, but some of my teammates <laughs> playing around in the in the other room. We basically live in these dorms. So I closed the door to try to hold off some of the noise, but they're they're getting pretty rowdy over there in the common room, so sorry about that.
0: So where are you? Are you uh in the Olympic Village yet or?
8: Yeah, we are. We've been here for about two days now, so it's getting settled in a little bit. Been crazy. It's just been crazy. I think it's been a lot crazier than I actually would have ever imagined it. Just with so many people milling around from all different, from every different part of the world. It's just. It's pretty. It's pretty amazing. What
1: can you compare it to anything else?
8: No. Absolutely <laughs> not. It's by far one of the best basketball experiences I've ever had in my life, and I feel like, the sporting experiences, period. I mean, uh, and and it hasn't even started yet, so I don't even. I'm. I'm Anxious to see the explosion that happens once the 27th actually hits and, and the games actually start.
0: Yeah. Is there, a, sort of as a fan, is there an athlete you're most excited to
8: see there? I mean, it's got to, be, I think, Hussein Bolt. You know, I, to me, Hussein, this is his time right now, and I feel like you know I have the opportunity to maybe, to maybe see him run, but um, even maybe to bump into him in the dining hall. So, I mean, uh, you know, people like that. I saw Michael Phelps the other day. And, uh, I mean, it's, everybody's just here, so it's just—it's pretty cool.
1: So is it possible that you could be, like, standing in line at the cafeteria with your tray and then Michael Phelps or Usain Bolt will be right behind you getting their yeah. their food, too?
8: Very, very possible. Like, <laughs> can definitely happen wow. the other day, except that I was just sitting there. At the, I had already gotten my food, and Michael Phelps was going through the line.
1: So when you saw Michael Phelps go through, did you look at his, the food on his tray and think, oh, maybe I should get some of that, too? <laughs>
8: No, nah, not really. I mean, I, I was just like, I just told some of the guys on my team, I was like, I look like Michael Phelps. I was like, that is Michael Phelps. And I was like, yeah, that's Michael Phelps.
1: God, it's, it,
0: it sounds like high school, except everyone is the cool kid.
8: Yeah, essentially. Essentially, that's what it is. It's, it's kind of a surreal experience out here. All
0: right, well, Coco, uh, thanks so much for talking to us, and best of luck uh, on the court. I appreciate it.
1: Okay, last thing for the Olympics, when you win a gold medal, what do you do with it?
0: Senator Bill Bradley, you have a gold medal. I do have a gold medal, and quite frankly, I don't know where it is. Really? So I don't display mine, but I think it's in a closet somewhere.
1: Well, now, you got one, and it says 1964. Yeah,
0: back in the Paleolithic era.
1: <laughs> so, but when you first had it, did you, like, wear it around and stuff?
0: Never. I, I put it in a box. Well, I, it was, I think my parents had it. When they passed away, they gave it to me,
3: and I put it in a closet.
1: So you gave it to your folks? Yeah. But you never, I mean, I, you were a younger man then. Did you ever use the gold medal like out of like dates or anything like that?
0: <laughs> no, I never did. I didn't have to resort to the gold medal, but uh, I guess it was an option at some point.
1: Okay, fair enough. Well, that does it for this week's show, Ian. What'd you learn?
0: Well, I learned that sometimes when I'm on a flight, uh, there might be a horse back behind me uh, in another section of the plane.
1: What do you think would be worse, having a baby sitting behind you or a horse sitting behind you on a plane?
0: I bet if you're a horse, you're always complaining about legs room. Like, why did they charge me extra for legs room?
1: I learned that if I'm ever watching men's gymnastics and I and someone does a good job, like my instinct would probably be to shake their hand. Yeah. I I now know that that's not something I'm going to do.
0: That might be a handshake that uh, it was, it might become a permanent handshake. Yeah. It might be stuck to them forever.
1: No, we're honey brothers.
0: How to Do Everything is produced by Blythe Haga with technical direction from Lorna White.
1: Our intern this week is Mackenzie Van Englenhoven, who won the gold medal in Englenhoven.
0: We will put a schedule on our website of uh, when all the athletes we've talked to or talked about today are competing in London.
1: You can see the Dream Team take on Nigeria. You can watch the shooting competition with the Malaysian shooter.
0: Yeah, you can watch Matt Tegenkamp in the 10,000 meters. Uh, we'll put that on our website, howtodoeverything.org.
1: And of course, if you have any questions, send them to us at howto at npr.org. I'm Ian. I'm Mike. Thanks. Mike.
0: What's the Olympic motto? Bigger, fa- faster, longer. Str-
1: Is that the Olympics? Do it, make it. Da-da, 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 da-da.
4: <laughs> Do it, Do it, make it.